We've been taking time on Sunday nights to think about what we're calling biblical spirituality. This is the third evening we've spent on this, and we'll probably do one more. So far, we've spent two nights thinking about biblical meditation. We looked at Psalm 1, and then last time, some verses from Psalm 119. And if you missed last time, there are still some of these little meditation bookmarks left over. I'll put those on the table at the back afterwards. This evening, we're going to think about something that is related to meditation. Stillness. There are a couple of ways we could understand the word stillness. We could take it as physically sitting still and being quiet, away from distractions. Or we could understand stillness as stillness of the mind and heart, whatever the external circumstances. So we could call it having a quiet heart, a heart that's at peace and at rest. Tonight we're going to think about both kinds of stillness because they're connected and both of them are in short supply today. Certainly stillness of the mind and heart is in short supply and that shows itself in various ways. For example, in the six years from the year 2000 to the year 2006, the number of sleeping pill prescriptions in the U.S. went up 60% to 42 million prescriptions a year. I don't know how much of that was connected to the 9-11 attacks in the World Trade Center. But there are plenty of people in America who can't get to sleep. We could say the same about the UK. The problem of depression is also on the rise. Recently, prescriptions of antidepressants have gone up 40% here in the UK. Our lack of stillness of the mind and heart shows itself in various ways. The other kind of stillness is not very common either. That's quietness away from external distractions. It seems that the pace of life just keeps increasing. I read recently that the average person gets two hours less sleep per night than the average person 100 years ago. We try to pack more into every 24-hour period. And yet we seem to have more and more trouble concentrating. We have more things to distract us. Mobile phones and the internet can be great helps to us, but they can also take control of us. We can end up perpetually distracted. We can get addicted to being constantly connected and updated and beeped at and tweeted at and whatever else. Even when we're not physically moving around, even when we're alone, there's plenty to distract us. Endless TV channels and websites. We have to work hard to get away from distractions and find some quiet and stillness. But we're going to start tonight with the other kind of stillness. Not stillness around us, but stillness inside us. Stillness of the mind and heart. So if you haven't already turned to Psalm 131, you'll find it on page 624 in the Church Bible. There are not many psalms as short as Psalm 131. There are a couple, but not many. 
a song of ascent of David. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quietened my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. This is God's word. Charles Spurgeon said this psalm is one of the shortest to read, but one of the longest to learn. This tiny psalm teaches us, first of all, about rejecting the enemies of stillness. It's in verse 1. And then choosing stillness in verse 2. And third, the only reliable ground for stillness. That's verse 3. Then after we've looked at this, we'll come back to the other kind of stillness, getting away from distractions. And we'll see how that helps us with the stillness Psalm 131 is talking about. The inscription above this psalm says, A Song of Ascents of David. What are songs of ascent? Well, there are 15 of them included in the book of Psalms. Psalms 120 through to 134. They were probably sung by pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem for one of the three annual Jewish festivals. And this collection of 15 of them later became part of the liturgy that was used in the temple worship in Jerusalem. But they started out as songs for pilgrims to sing on their journey. The inscription tells us this particular song of ascent is of David. Which could mean it was for David, but it seems more likely it was written by David. And the song opens with David talking about rejecting the enemies of stillness. In verse 1. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. If we're going to experience stillness of the mind and heart, we have to reject certain things. First of all, a proud heart. And before we assume that we've got this one covered... We need to understand that pride shows itself in various ways. Of course, there's the obvious sign of pride when people strut around like peacocks, oozing self-confidence and self-sufficiency, proud of their education or their position or wealth or looks. We can spot that kind of pride very easily. But a proud heart can show itself in other ways. It can show itself in anxiety and depression. How much of our depression comes from feeling that we aren't getting what we deserve? People aren't treating us right. They don't notice our abilities. They don't notice the sacrificial work we do. We don't get the praise and the rewards that are due to us. We're convinced that we're undervalued and underappreciated. We deserve better. And we sink into self-pity and self-depression. I'm not for a moment saying that all depression comes about this way. But a good deal of it does. 
If we could truly get to the point of being alone with God and being able to say, my heart is not proud, O Lord, then we would find quietness in our heart. We would worry a lot less about whether people are treating us right and giving us our dues. G.K. Chesterton said, how much larger your life would be if yourself became smaller in it. You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always being played. Pride causes us to focus on ourselves. And we either become puffed up if things are going well for us, or we become deflated if they're going badly for us. Pride puts us on a roller coaster ride that robs us of stillness and contentment in our hearts. How much of our anxiety is down to pride? Why do we get anxious? Isn't it because we're sure that we know how things should turn out? But we don't know if they're going to turn out that way. We worry because we believe we know best. And yet deep down, we know we have no control over the future. That doesn't stop us trying. We get anxious about our health, our families, our job, our savings, maybe about how our sermon is going to go. And when things don't seem to be turning out right, when our plans get turned upside down, we go to pieces. Pieces. I get anxious because I don't trust that God knows best. I don't trust his timing. I've decided what God ought to do, and I'm not sure if he's going to do it, or if he's going to do it when I think he should do it. That's a form of pride. And it prevents me from having stillness and peace in my heart. David goes on to say, my eyes are not haughty. The emphasis here seems to be on looking down on other people. If we fall into this, we get stuck in a rut of always comparing ourselves with others. We're always competing to stay ahead of others. If someone else has success or blessing, if they receive praise, we find it hard to rejoice with them. We feel that their success is hurting us in some way. No doubt the recent royal wedding was a lovely occasion. But it also illustrated the kind of thing that happens when people have haughty eyes. The majority of what I heard on the news was about who looked better than who. There seemed to be delight in pointing out who had messed up in the fashion stakes. So-and-so's hat was a disaster. I don't disagree with that in some cases. Someone else didn't even wear a hat. And apparently she borrowed an item of clothing instead of buying it new. Someone else pinned their MBE on the wrong lapel. That was newsworthy. When we have haughty eyes, we feel better about ourselves by laughing at the flaws in other people. And it's not restricted to fashion. It happens in education, in sport, in the workplace, even in families. It doesn't have to be as out in the open as it was at the royal wedding. It can be going on quietly in our hearts, always comparing, measuring ourselves against others. 
and feeling good or bad depending on the outcome. Haughty eyes rob us of peace and stillness in our heart. Life becomes a big competition with everybody else. And we know that we could be the next one to fall in our faces. One commentator says, The proud person looks, compares, competes, and is never content. He plans and schemes in his heart as to how he can outdo and outperform. Then David says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. There are some things in life that God has given us responsibility for. He has put into our hands the ability to do something about them. Then there are other things we do not have responsibility for. We have no ability to do anything about them. Examples of things we can do something about would be our obedience to God's commands. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Love your neighbor as yourself. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Practice hospitality. You get the idea. The Bible contains hundreds of commands given by God to his people. God has given us the responsibility of obeying those commands. And he has assured us that by his Holy Spirit we have power to obey them. So we could think of a big circle containing all of God's commands. As Christians we have responsibility to do something about the things inside that circle. To avoid adultery, to love and forgive, to take in God's word. If we have exams, we have the responsibility to prepare as best we can for those exams. Paul says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. There are plenty of things to keep us busy within that circle of responsibility. But there are also plenty of things that are outside that circle. Things I do not have responsibility for. Things I have no ability to do anything about. Examples of those things would be whether my children put their trust in Christ and stay faithful to him. I do have responsibility to love them and teach them about Christ through words and example. But I can't give them a new heart. I can't make sure they don't get pregnant or get someone else pregnant or refuse the drugs that are offered to them. Another example would be whether I get cancer or not. I do have responsibility to be a good steward of the body God has given me. To exercise and eat right and get enough sleep. But I have no ultimate control over my health. I have no control over the brain and the hands of the surgeon who operates on me. Or my job. I have responsibility to be a good employee but I can't control how the economy goes or how my employer responds to the economy or the effect of a sermon. A preacher has a responsibility to prepare himself and his message as best he can, to be as faithful to God's word as he can. But he can't control what the Holy Spirit will do with that sermon or who the Spirit will bring to hear the sermon. 
I think those are the kind of things David has in mind when he says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. He doesn't mean he's indifferent to how his children turn out. He doesn't mean that he takes cancer lightly or that he's careless about his job. He simply acknowledges acknowledges that some things are out of his control. Ultimately, he has no ability to decide how those things turn out. Those things are God's responsibility. And David will leave them in God's hands. No doubt he will bring them to God in prayer. He may well weep over those prayers. But he will entrust those things to God. He will reject the kind of pride that gets anxious because it can't bear to trust those things to God. He will not struggle for control of things that are out of his hands. One writer says this about those things outside our circle of responsibility. When I make these things my business, I act as if I can do what God alone can do. And when we do that, we will not have peace and stillness in our heart. This separation between things that are our responsibility and things that are not is summed up in the book of Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. The details of our future and our children's future have not been revealed to us. We have no ability to sort them out. Those things belong to the Lord our God. And so we must leave those things with him. We must concern ourselves with the things that have been revealed to us. The areas we have been given insight and ability and responsibility. When we find that we have no peace in our hearts, it's worth asking ourselves, do I feel this way because I'm sinning against God and God is convicting me? Am I neglecting some responsibility he's given me? Or do I lack peace because I'm acting like I'm in God's place? Am I struggling to control things that I can't control? David has told us he rejects the enemies of stillness. In verse 2, he talks about choosing stillness. But I have stilled and quietened my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Before we think about the picture of stillness David gives us, notice how the verse starts. I have. David has acted to still and quieten his soul. According to David, stillness in our hearts is something we can choose. It is within the circle of things that we can do something about. That might be a revelation for some of us. One writer explains what David is saying. I have spoken to the tumultuous ambitions desires, anxieties, and boasts of my soul and told them to be quiet. Notice too what David does not say. He doesn't say, I did this once, 
And then I never had trouble with anxiety or worry again. No, this is a choice that has to be made every day. Usually multiple times in a day. Ambitions, desires, anxieties, and boasts are always bubbling up in our souls. But in each instance, we have the ability to tell them to be quiet. We know we have the ability to do this because Jesus commanded his disciples not to worry. Proverbs tells us to trust in the Lord. God only commands us to do things we are able to do in the power of the Spirit. In Psalm 42, we find the psalmist in the process of stilling and quieting his soul. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. He is telling his soul to be quiet. It's something we might have to do a dozen times a day. But we are not helpless when pride and anxiety and worry rise up in our heart. Then David gives us this picture of what it's like for our souls to be still. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. When our boys were still breastfeeding, the smell of Megan's milk would agitate them. If she tried to hold them without feeding them, they would be fighting and fretting. They wouldn't settle. That's a picture of what we're like when our souls are not still and quiet. Our hearts are agitated. We're consumed with grasping and reaching and struggling for what we want. We can't be still. But when a child is weaned, it's different. He can be at peace in his mother's arms. He isn't wrestling for what he wants anymore. He rests, he's still, sometimes. One writer says, here's a child snuggled against its mother in confident trust, leaving to the mother the things that are great matters beyond what the child can do. That's a picture of the soul that has told its pride and anxiety to be quiet. This stillness that David is talking about has not come about because circumstances are peaceful and quiet. The soul is calm because it's not depending on itself in the circumstances. It has chosen to depend on God. And that part is crucial to this. Because Psalm 131 is not about the power of positive thinking. It's not about finding inner strength and pulling ourselves together. It's about taking our eyes off ourselves, looking to God our Father, and choosing to trust him because he is trustworthy. And so in verse 3, David gives us the only reliable ground for stillness. O Israel, Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. When Lord appears in capitals in our English Bibles, it's translating God's personal name, Yahweh. The book of Exodus tells us God appeared to Moses at the burning bush and told him to go and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. You remember the story, Moses asked God his name. 
And God said, Yahweh. That's his personal name. It's the name that distinguishes him from every other so-called God. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Yahweh showed himself to be trustworthy. He showed himself to be good and almighty and all-wise. So when David says here, put your hope in the Lord, he is not calling us to take a gamble. He's calling us to remember who the Lord is, who he has shown himself to be, and then to choose to trust him because he is trustworthy. The story of the Old Testament is the story of a God who knows what he's doing, a God who keeps his promises, a God who never makes mistakes. And that revelation of God continues in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we find a greater man than David fighting the battle for stillness in his soul. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ was tempted in every way, just as we are. So we know he was tempted to anxiety and to despair. And we find him struggling with that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 26 tells us that faced with the prospect of the cross, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. In fact, he turns to his disciples and says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And Jesus prays for another way. Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The cup he was talking about was the cross and all the suffering that went with the cross. In purely human terms, Jesus did not want the cross. In that moment, he wanted another way. But he chose to trust his Father. We all know how he ended his prayer. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Matthew tells us Jesus prayed three times that night, saying the same thing. Choosing to trust his Father was not an easy, throwaway decision for Jesus. If it had been easy, Hebrews would not be accurate in saying he was tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet in the face of the horror of the cross, Jesus chose to quiet and still his soul, like a weaned child with his mother. He chose to put his trust and his hope in the God who had shown himself trustworthy. And so Jesus has led the way for every man or woman who faces cancer or death or wayward children or unemployment or unfair treatment or rejection or anything else that causes anxiety and worry to bubble up inside us and threaten to drown us. If our sinless Savior could trust his Father in the face of the suffering and injustice of the cross, then we who belong to the Savior can trust the same Father. 
In every situation, we can choose to say to our Father, not as I will, but as you will. Psalm 131 is still a song for pilgrims. It's a song to meditate on and memorize and pray again and again. I said we'd finish briefly by looking at another kind of stillness. Not the stillness in our hearts, but the stillness that comes from getting away from distractions. I mention this because there is a definite link between the two kinds of stillness. If we never get away from the noise and distractions that are all around us, then we're unlikely to lift our eyes off our immediate circumstances and onto God. We're unlikely to remember the ways he has shown himself to be trustworthy. And so we're unlikely to find stillness in our souls. We spent two weeks talking about meditation on Scripture. But unless we're willing to choose to turn off the distractions or make time to escape the distractions, we're never going to meditate. And so we're not going to be able to focus on God. But it's only by focusing on him that we find the confidence in him to choose to trust him throughout the day. Someone has said that daily quiet time with God airs out the mind and irons out the wrinkles of the soul. One of the wrinkles that needs to be ironed out of our souls every day is the belief that we know best. Undistracted meditation on God's word reminds us that he knows best. And I know we're tempted to think that distractions are a modern problem. We're tempted to think we're the first generation to have trouble finding a time and a place to be in God's presence. But it has never been easy. The beginning of Mark's gospel describes a typical day for Jesus. Mark tells us the Sabbath began with Jesus teaching in the synagogue. Then he delivered a demon-possessed man. Mark says that as soon as Jesus left the synagogue, he went to the home of Simon and Andrew where he healed Simon's mother-in-law. Then we're told that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. So after a late night, we're told, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And then the exhausting work started all over again for Jesus. Even 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the only way that Jesus could escape to be quiet was by getting up very early in the morning. And even then, his time was limited. People were looking for him. But Jesus knew the importance of that time alone with his Father. So he did what he had to do to find that time. 
And then when the trial in Gethsemane came, Jesus chose to trust the Father he'd been with in those times of solitary stillness. And none of us are spiritually stronger than Jesus was. We have to find the time to be still and to refocus on our all-sufficient God. If we don't, our hearts will never have any victory over anxiety and fretfulness and resentment and depression and everything else that bubbles up that threatens to unsettle our hearts. We're going to respond to God's word as we sing, Be still, my soul.